0: hallelujah for the lord our god the almighty reigns let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory for the marriage of the lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready it was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen bright and pure revelation nineteen six through 8
1: You're listening to a Word Fitly Spoke, and I'm Zoe Heidi here today with David Apple to continue our discussion of the Book of Revelation. David, how are you doing? I'm doing great, Zelen. Doing great.
0: How's the weather out your way? Uh, today I think it's gonna be 80 degrees. We put the shorts away, um, but had to get them back out. I think I told you that was I knew that was gonna happen last time, but fall, the, the leaves are starting to fall. The colors are changing to some extent. We went from Kind of yellow, brown to fully brown. Um, it didn't rain in Paducah from I think the whole month of September. There was no rain. We had we had forty days and forty nights without rain. Um, it finally rained a little bit. The burn ban was lifted, um, so we've been able to have a few bonfires. Um,
1: all in all, life is good. No, oh, that sounds good. I. I'm still kind of marveling that your weather is, is 80 degrees still because yeah. I'm looking out my window here and, you know, it's, I think it's like 50 something today, but it, we're predicted to have uh pretty cold weather in the near future, like below freezing. And we, uh, go ahead. Yeah, I think it
0: frosted. No, it, it didn't ever frost yet. I think it was close. We had a few warnings, but um, I don't think we've had our first frost yet. I could sure. be wrong. I know we didn't didn't at my house, but maybe in some of the, the lower places it has frosted. I don't know.
1: Well, we've had our first snow come and go. So that's that's always something. Um mm-hmm. I think we're supposed to maybe get snow like early next week again. But uh that's again, that's that's pretty typical for this part of the world to have snow. The first snow in October, early November. Um it never stays, which it didn't, but it's just the way life is here. So we are very much beginning the, uh, the winter period. So you,
0: you've traded in the, the wife beaters for, um, longer sleeves now. And by longer <laughs> sleeves, I mean like cutoffs. Yeah, I, 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 you got the muscles ripping out.
1: So <laughs> Yeah. I mean, cause you don't want to get too hot. Right. <laughs> <laughs> but no, it's, it's, it's good though. I mean, this is just the way things are and the trees are pretty much done with their leaves and we're just beginning our 8 months of winter as as it were <laughs> good deal we'll have we'll have winter weather more or less from now until april basically
0: ours will hit probably uh, the month of january is cold um december you know, Christmas, we'll see. We'll see if we have a white Christmas. It's. Um, I've been here eight years now, and I think only one of our, maybe one or two of the Christmases were actually cold. But that, you know, that was a big deal for me when we came down here, you know, Christmas morning to be able to ride bicycle. Like, I think we got Sam a bike one Christmas, and it was so strange that he could ride his bike on Christmas morning because... You know, growing up, that was
1: impossible. You couldn't do that in Michigan, but you can in Kentucky. So, <laughs> yeah. Well, just we'll we'll get to we'll get going here. But uh, I I remember this past year we didn't have a Monday Thursday service because it blizzarded. So that says something about yeah the the weather in this part of the world. Here
0: it seems like without fail, Holy Week is the is the week where we we should have switched our. Switched over from heat to air conditioning, but we didn't. And so I think every Monday Thursday I have finished the service, stripping the altar, and I'm just pouring sweat underneath <laughs> all my evidence. It's that's what makes me, you know, Willie knows the way, uh, which is to get fiddleback chauzables. Um, I I still haven't graduated to that level of of southernness. That that moment when
1: your chauzable is a cutoff, exactly. Carnival feels. <laughs> Speaking of Willie, uh, he is not dead. <laughs> you seek him here, but he's somewhere else. <laughs> he has been occupied lately, and I'll let him talk about it if he wants when he comes back. But he will be with us again. I know it's been, I think this is the third episode where he hasn't been with us. But we'll, we'll, we will see him again. And then he will bring bring us joy when he does. Yeah, he had to see a man about a horse. <laughs> Or go into the, to the, uh, the hollow earth or, you know, insert whatever you want to here. He's probably doing all of them. Seeking Atlantis, that sort of thing. So, well, very good, David. Uh, let's begin then talking about Revelation. And we are continuing our discussion into chapter 19. So why don't you kind of set us up a little bit with the context, help us understand where we are in the book.
0: Yes. Last we knew, chapter 18, the smoke of the whore of Babylon was ascending up to heaven. And there were various responses to that. So chapter 17 is the actual destruction of the whore. Chapter 18 records various people who kind of leave the city, who flee from Babylon, and they, re- they see the smoke go up. Um, And it's the different people of the earth, various kinds of merchants and kings who come out of Babylon um, and are lamenting the fall of Babylon. And if you remember our discussion from last time, Zelwyn uh, and our listeners, there's sort of this question, are these people, is this repentance or is this just people um, saying, oh man, it's too bad that Babylon fell. We really loved her. Um, or are they are they happy? But then in chapter nineteen, you get the response of heaven. To, so we've seen how Earth responds when Babylon falls, uh, but now we're going to see what. How does heaven respond, and the saints in heaven, especially what is their reaction to God's judgment on
1: this prostitute? Yeah, and uh, I mean it's it's pretty clear, wouldn't you say? Especially in this first section of one through five, I mean they're 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 quoting Handel here, right? Yes, it's doubly clear.
0: Um, you get you get two witnesses, which in scripture, you know, the testimony of two or three is complete. And really, I guess you get three three witnesses here. Um, but the the response of heaven to the fall of God's enemies is overwhelming joy, right? There's no reluctance from heaven to say, well, you know, the, the pity is not misplaced. And we'll come back to that later because I think that's sometimes people have a hard time. When God's enemies fall, are we allowed to be happy about that? Or should shouldn't we kind of always, you know, have a caveat, have some nuance to our praise. And in heaven, they're just hap- they're just overcome with joy. They're shouting, singing aloud, not just once but twice. Hallelujah. Um, that God has brought down the whore of Babylon, yeah. and we we discussed this last time. But you know, if this if that happens at the end of the world, the final day of judgment, okay, I think everybody would be on board with that. But when you know, like me, you want to interpret uh, the whore of Babylon as the fall of Jerusalem in the year seventy, that causes a little bit more consternation for people because then you're saying that God's judgments come in, in time, we've seen his judgments, and we should rejoice when those judgments happen, not just at the end of the world, but as they happen within
1: our experience of history. And I do think that's a good point to make. I mean, I think I would, you know, I would still say that this is looking forward to the end, you know, the the final fall of all things, and we can go back and forth on that a little bit. But uh, the point that you made that you know, we can rejoice in the fall of God's enemies also in time is something that I think is worth making. But before we get to that discussion, uh, let's look at the text a little bit, at least the first three verses, uh, just to kind of get a picture of what heaven is doing. And they do say, uh, hallelujah. What is, what is hallelujah, David? Praise the Lord, man. Praise the Lord, man. Praise the Lord and pass the ammunition.
0: Hallelujah is just the Hebrew, you know, praise. Halal is the Hebrew word for praise. And so it's this. um, And then Yah, of course, gets into, uh, you know, since Willie's not here, um, it doesn't say praise Jehovah, but it says praise like Yahweh, right? You shut Um, your mouth. Praise the Lord. I'll do penance. I'm sorry. That's what it (laughs) says. But it's praise Jehovah. And the reason for the praise is what I would highlight. You know, it, it zooms in. Why are we praising God here? Why does heaven um, and these voices that come from heaven, it says, it seemed to me there was a, gr- a loud voice of a great multitude in heaven. So this is that um, heavenly host. These, This is the voice of the saints, not the voice of the angels, um, but the voice of the human saints uh, who earlier had been praying how long, O oh Lord, how long until you avenge us, right? That's the the prayer of the martyrs back in chapter six. Now God has avenged the martyrs. Um, that's really why Babylon falls, um, Jerusalem falls because she has drunk the blood of the saints. And now um, they say he has judged the prostitute. His judgments are true and just. So it's a, the song of praise comes When God's justice is done. Um, And I think maybe, you know, that might surprise us. It's not a reaction to God's mercy, it's a reaction to his justice. But of course, those things, and we've talked about this before, we don't want to set those things in opposition to each other. But it's just, it's worth pointing out what causes this joy in heaven the justice of God, his act of judgment.
1: Well, and I think, and to kind of get into the discussion where we want to go, talking about rejoicing over the destruction. I think it's very telling that in verse 3, they're rejoicing that the smoke of Babylon goes up forever and ever. In other words, that the destruction is so complete, you know, it is like a a furnace which is burning and uh, the smoke continues to go up and that also is a sign of joy. The destruction of the city itself the going up of the smoke is a something that is worthy of rejoicing over which they do and I mean what do we make of that I mean how do we how do we deal with this this sentiment in the Bible yeah well the smoke going up I think is where else do we see
0: in scripture smoke going up there's the smoke of um, of Sodom and mm-hmm. Gomorrah. Uh, right, which is certainly in the background here, there's also the smoke that goes up in the in the sacrifices of israel so and I think that you can you can bring these things so the the point is there's some kind of a sacrificial image here when Babylon falls it's the reaction is like the reaction when the people see the smoke of the incense offering going up um it's to to sing praise to God um and i th- I think you know, we saw this a little bit when, um, like when Roe v. Wade was overturned, right? There was this, you know, are we allowed to be happy about that? Is that a good, is that something that we can celebrate or not? And there was various responses by people, but I think the general sentiment was, um, well, we don't want to be, we don't want to come off as taunting or gloating, Over things, right? That's why Christians Uh would say, you know, you should, you you don't want to rub it in people's faces. That's a bad witness. Well, nobody told these saints that, right? (laughs) Um, In fact, from the throne, God encourages their praise. So you get, there's two um, voices, verse one and two have the first response, which Uh is the singing of praise. Um, Then verse three says, hallelujah again, And then in verse five, a voice comes from the throne. Okay, so this is the voice of God himself, whether it's the father um, or the lamb who's on the throne, praise our God, all you, his saints, you who fear him small and great. So he hears their singing. And instead of saying, hey, guys, keep it down. We don't want, you know, to give people the wrong idea that we're happy. He says, turn it up, right? Louder, louder. (laughs) Take it to eleven let's go yeah, and i I think that that's important to see there's there's nothing wrong with celebrating the fall of god's enemies. Um, we pray for it in the psalms all the time there the imprecatory psalms are not like a minor category of the psalms. it's like everywhere in the psalms that we pray for god's judgments, and certainly you know you can you can bring in the nuance of well do we, does that, that doesn't always mean the destruction of enemies. It could mean the conversion of enemies, right? But isn't isn't the conversion of an enemy, the destruction of an enemy? I mean, there's, there's kind of a, a distinction without much of a difference there. So, so my point here is just to see this as it is, it's not just okay, but it's appropriate to praise God when he, when he, when he brings his judgments on the enemies of God.
1: I just want to point out, you missed a one voice in the midst of this, and that's in verse four, the angels who cry out and say, amen, hallelujah. Yeah. Which again shows that the angels too are rejoicing over the destruction of Babylon because they see God's justice being carried out. Yes. For the, the saints, of course, there is that sense of God has given us what we were seeking which is something certainly worth rejoicing over but the angels themselves uh, the elders and the four living creatures also rejoice and heaven rejoices because you know this is a god's god's justice is something worth celebrating maybe if if that's one way of putting it you know yeah
0: and what do you think so I mean the hesitancy to do that is perhaps a, a hesitancy of why, why do, maybe put it this way, why wouldn't it be appropriate to celebrate the fall of Babylon or something like the fall of Babylon? You know, when, our, when those who oppose God's word are put down, what, why shouldn't we, why wouldn't we want to celebrate that?
1: Probably because we've internalized this notion that being a Christian is a kind of niceness You know, that we are, we're always supposed to be nice. We're not supposed to be offensive. We're supposed to be, you know what I mean? It's it's, it's kind of a a meekness that is not a biblical meekness. Yeah. Um, Because you have to remember, Jesus is described as being, you know, exceedingly meek. You know, he's like Moses, you know, the meekest man on the earth. Right. And Jesus himself can drive out the money changers from the temple. So meekness is not opposed to, you know, this kind of rejoicing, or shall we say this kind of violence, but we have, for whatever reason, seem to think that that's what meekness means.
0: Yeah. I think it goes with, right, the, the verse that probably comes into most people's minds when they think about, okay, what do you, how should we think or act towards our enemies right? The, the, ver- the words of Jesus, and this is appropriate, you know, you should, the words of Jesus in your mind should always come to the forefront is love your enemies and pray for mm-hmm. those who persecute you. Right. Mm-hmm. So there is, but, but I, and I think what, what often happens is we think, okay, since I'm supposed to love my enemies and pray for them, therefore, if they experience hardship or destruction then I should feel bad about that almost, right? Because I would feel bad, for instance, if something bad happened to you, Zelwyn, I would, you know, that I wouldn't, I wouldn't celebrate that, right? Um, but there's no, there's not opposition between praying for our persecutors uh, and loving them, but also then uh, rejoicing when God acts and brings down our enemies, there is an answer to those prayers right and so the the vindication of the of the martyrs which is what happens when the the whore of babylon falls the martyrs are vindicated and they respond by singing praise that's the appropriate response it's not unloving to sing praise to god when he acts
1: in judgment yeah well and i think with that too you know we need to recognize that there comes a point when we no longer pray for our enemies, right? Jesus calls for us to pray for them, which we should. Jesus calls for us to love our enemies, which we should. But once the judgment has come, there's no point in continuing to, to pray in that way. Yeah. because God has rendered his judgment upon them. And I think because, I don't know, maybe we almost think that it continues, like we need to be feeling sorry for them, even in their judgment. Um, I think that's just it's, just, it's a confusion of categories. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah I think, well, that was what happened after the, the
0: Roe v. Wade thing, right? It was almost like, you're. it's okay to be thankful that this happened, but you always have to, like, kind of cushion that with, you also feel bad, you know, that people are sad about it. And you just don't see that in Revelation, you know, you don't see Um, The saints in heaven saying, you know, we're so glad that the whore of Babylon fell, but we feel really sorry for all these merchants who lost a lot, you know, who had so much bound up with Babylon. Um, They're just, they're overwhelmed. There's no nuance. It's just praise. It's just straight praise. And again, the
1: voice from the throne says, louder. Louder. Turn it up. Well, you see, David, you're supposed to feel bad that they feel bad that they can't kill babies anymore.
0: I know we just we're just always like self-flagellation. You know, it's like the monks all over again, right? You just Christians should just always feel bad. And what I'm <laughs> saying is, no, <laughs> it's okay to have a victory. It's okay to win and uh, to
1: post some W's. Let's go is what you're saying. Yeah. <laughs> all right. Well, we'll be right back right after the break with more word fitly spoken. Fitly Spoken. I'm Zoe and Heidi here today with David Appled, continuing our discussion of the book of Revelation. So David, before the break we were talking about Revelation chapter 19, talking about rejoicing over the destruction of our enemies and that sort of thing. But now the, the scene in Revelation 19 continues on and we see the, a great multitude again, but what are, they, what are they doing this time? Yeah, so once the, the whore of Babylon can, is cleared
0: out then the bride of Christ appears. I don't know whether to get into this. Well, I'll I'll wait on that thought. Uh, but you you have the the sound of praise. The song of praise is kind of modulated here. So instead of looking back, now we're going to look forward. There's a little bit of progress. Okay, and so now the song is Hallelujah for the Lord God Omnipotent Reigneth. Um, I think you said in the last James, time. yeah. Yes. Um, They're quoting Handel. Uh, So now instead of rejoicing over God's judgment that came, it says, let us rejoice and exult, give him glory for the marriage of the lamb has come. Okay. So you almost have, I think here's a a good way to see the, the narrative progress. Um, The, the whore of Babylon was a, um, a pseudo bride for Christ. It was a false bride. Um, And so now that she is cleared out of the way, she was completely unworthy of the lamb. Now you have the the true bride coming. And so it goes on to describe the marriage of the lamb has come. His bride has made herself ready. And it was granted to her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. Okay. So with the whore of Babylon cleared, now we can get ready for the real, the real
1: bride to come. That makes and- sense. Yeah, no, it makes perfect sense. I mean, we see here the coming of the church, which will come in, it. you know, the church will come in its fullness in a little bit, you know, especially when we get into chapters 21 and 22, uh, with, the, with the coming of the city and the, you know, all of those things. But we do see the, the bridal procession beginning, I think would be fair to say. You know, the marriage of the Lamb has come. You know, God is preparing to... You marry his bride, so to speak. I mean, that's that's the language of of Revelation, right? In the Old Testament, of course, she's already his wife, but in the New Testament, the picture is of a coming marriage, more often than not. And the two are not exclusive to each other. Uh, it's just the idea that you know we are what we are looking forward to in the Book of Revelation is the marriage to come. You know, mm-hmm. the the great day when. Uh all things will be complete. Is that yeah. fair?
0: Yeah, no, I think that's right on. And the the glorification of the Son of Man uh is matched by the glorification of his of his body, his bride, mm-hmm. church. So if you think of what the church has gone through in the book of Revelation <laughs> up to the point, um there's been tremendous sufferings experienced by the martyrs. Um, by the saints who have been persecuted and very, you know, some unto death, others might have a um, smaller sort of persecution. But the the glory of the Son is that He is going to bring His His people into a share of His glory as well, and so that um, you know, I, I mentioned this in the first segment, the cry of the martyrs in chapter six, "How long, O oh Lord? How long?" Well, now that that cry has been answered god has vindicated his people and the vindication is that they're elevated to share in his glory so i think that seeing some transition or seeing some progress in the book is helpful because we see the same thing in church history right Um, we see that the church yes there's sufferings there's there's always persecutions we have not reached the final glory but there are victories along the way, and Christ is leading his people to, to the final victory, but but there are these smaller
1: victories that come in time. No, and I think that's fair. I mean, Christ will reign over all the nations. He is reigning over all the nations, that sort of thing. You know, so we do see, as you say, these smaller victories in time, but I I, I mean... I do see this as the the great victory, you know, the final consummation of what, you know, the bride is, the bride is going to finally and forever become the wife of the lamb in mm-hmm. eternity. Yeah, and you do have, you have both of these
0: things in the New Testament, right? Paul will talk about, I think it's in 2 Corinthians, that he has betrothed. The, the Christians to Christ, but so you get that sense of um, the courtship has begun, but the marriage is not yet consummated. That comes on the final day, right? So, you, but in other places you do have, you know, that already now that we are the bride of Christ, that we, the church is Ephesians five, right? That the church is his bride already now. So you get both the, the now, the realized stuff and the not yet. Here's what I would say on whether this has happened or not i I take um, the fall of Babylon as the destruction of the temple in the year seventy, and with the temple destroyed with Jerusalem um, kind of ripped down, then the the church can go forward. the church can that's the sort of the initial entering into glory. Uh, but it's not yet complete. So the the bridal procession has begun, the marriage has begun, uh, but it's not going to be fully complete until the last day. And so I take everything, this this maybe we can get into more when we get to it, Zelwin, but I think everything that's happening now in chapter 19 um, is just the beginning of what will come to completion on the last day. So I think these things have already begun and that we're not waiting for them to still happen.
1: And I I think you can certainly look at it that way. I don't think there's anything that would say that you can't. I guess I tend to look at it more as a picture of the end and kind of looking at it from different perspectives, so to speak, so that we see the fall of Babylon, we see the fall of, you know, the fall of the beast here in a little bit, and then we will see the fall of Satan. So I mean, things that I would argue, you know, f- only fully happen at the end of days, even though in the meantime, like you say, we do see little victories here and there. Yeah. Right. Now that it does, there is something else in here. The bride makes
0: herself ready. This might uh, come as a surprise to us and she clothes herself in her own deeds. Right. Um, usually that image of righteousness or the image of clothing, uh, is, uh, often comes up as kind of imputed righteousness, right? All those who have right. been back into Christ have put on Christ. Um, we, we have his righteousness imputed. To us. Um, here you, you, you kind of get both things together, right? You get um, grace and works together because it says it was granted to her. So it was given by God to her, that great passive there. It was granted to her to clothe herself right? In Ephesians 5, um, you have Christ um, preparing his bride. He he does it, right? He removes all spot and wrinkle and blemish. But here, she clothes herself. And I, I just think it's, it's worth pointing out these things are not uh, in antagonism, but they work together, right? God gives it to us to actually do good works that are truly righteous. She's a big girl. She can clothe herself. And and she has to, right? The church. So you think about what that means for us. The doing good works, righteous deeds are not just a, it's not an option for Christians. It must happen. And, and it is that sanctification is part of how Christ already now begins to glorify the church, begins to glorify the bride, is that the spirit actually works these things in us. Um, and I know this is, I know this is right up your alley, Zellin. So I'll just kind of lob the softball in, right? Um, sins forgiven must become sins conquered, right? Is that
1: are are we pushing things too far if we say that? No. <laughs> I mean, of course, I'm I'm the one cracking jokes today, and you're you're being super serious, but that's okay. Um, no, I mean that's that's what we are called to do. We are called to be victorious. We are called to, you know, stop sinning. Yes, we can't really fully stop because of the weakness of our nature but jesus doesn't say to the woman caught in adultery well i guess you can go do whatever you want now right Mm -hmm. he says go and sin no more and he's not just saying that as a way of saying but you but there's there's a catch you can't really do it (laughs) yeah you know But so i mean the the point being that if she is clothing herself it is making that righteousness of Christ her own in that sense. And I don't want to be misunderstood here, but, you know, we need to do what God has called us to do. You know, it's, it is something that we are supposed to do. We are, we are, you could say even enabled to do, you know, that this, this is what God wants us to be, you know, the, the the human person is not a block of wood. You know, we have a will. God regenerates the will. And now we act in accordance with that regenerated will. You know, we, we do righteous things because God has redeemed us. He has regenerated us. He has made us new. It's part yeah. of what comes from faith, right? Yeah, it was given. And this, this
0: is, again, where you see this is not... Well, maybe we put it this way: there are, there is something to that that whole discussion of two kinds of righteousness, right? Why do why does um, why do our confessions talk about that? Or where did Luther get that idea? Well, it's passages like this, right? It was given to her to clothe herself alongside of Ephesians five, where Christ removes every spot and wrinkle and blemish. These things aren't opposed to each other, um, but it's all it's a package deal right justification leads to sanctification um and we can distinguish between the two but they're part of the same process which is the process of how god saves uh, how he redeems how he justifies how he sanctifies and glorifies um his church and it you do experience that in time yes you always you continue to experience the sinful nature um but you also are given by the Spirit to actually
1: do good works. And that's and how
0: should. God clothes herself. Yeah.
1: Yeah. yeah. And you should do those good works. You know, God has prepared them for you to do, but you still have to do them. So, so this, um, this being clothed in white is going to come back
0: later. This marriage, this image of marriage here, the marital procession, the bridal procession, as you said, Zelwyn, is going to turn martial in a minute. So I just want to put that in our hearers' minds, this um, you've got the bride clothed in white is going to become the army that follows Christ clothed in white as well, but there's this little before we get to the the march of the the warrior, the warrior bridegroom you you have this little interlude where John tries to to bow down to an angel. so the angel says to him, "Write this, blessed are those invited to the marriage supper of the lamb." and he says these are the true words of God and then you have this first instance where John tries to bow down to the angel and the angel says no you must not do that right um i am a servant like you and your brothers and we hold the testimony of jesus worship only god so there's no more the the honoring of the angel is gone um and only honor the lord god so it it can seem like a little bit of a um I don't know, an interlude or a a strange, to me, it seems like a strange thing to have in the text. I would think we would go straight from the marriage supper to the actual, some kind of a feast. But you have this, this little instance where John tries to honor the angel and the angel says, no, don't do that. We're on the same plane, right? You, you have, we have the same testimony. We have the same um, thing. And so we are on the same level. And I think this is, again, part of that progression of the saints being elevated, the saints being glorified, so that now they don't bow down to angels. And of course, it was always wrong to worship angels, but even the honoring of angels, the bowing down to them is removed because man and angel are at the same level here, which soon man will be elevated above the angels as well.
1: So you're saying, if I understand you correctly here, the reason why he's moved to worship the angel is because of an a inequality? Is that, am I understanding you correctly? He He's falling down, right? That
0: word worship, I mean, it seems strange that John, the apostle, would ever think that it was okay to, like, fully worship a, an angel. But that word worship can also just mean to, right, to prostrate, to show honor to someone. Okay. And so what I'm saying here is I would take it in that second sense. He's going to honor the angel and the angel says, no, no, you, you're my, you're my, I'm a fellow servant with you. I'm a a brother with you. And so you don't bow down in the old Testament. There's, there's, um, right. I think in judges, doesn't Gideon bow down to the angel? Um, and
1: that's okay to do. Um, that that was, that was the angel of the Lord. That was a very different situation.
0: That, well, and that could be, um, but I think even the honoring of the angels here that there's, I, because again, I'm trying to figure out why does that come up here? What's yeah. the what's the connection that makes John go to bow down and the angels say, no, don't do that. I think seeing this as another instance of that man has is being elevated, that the saints are being elevated. This is a way of showing The saints are being lifted up, like it says in the psalm, um, for a little while we are lower than the angels, but now God has brought us to a place of honor above them because the son of God has become man to lift us up with him.
1: Yeah, and yeah, I'm I'm not arguing that the word for worship here could just mean simply to fall down you know it doesn't have to carry the sense of worship with it but it very often does and i that's why i think that it's it is a fair translation to say that he has fallen down to worship him and i i see where you're getting at i mean we're trying to figure out this kind of bizarre situation where john basically tries to worship something other than the lord you know right. he who has seen all of these things has been following after what god has been doing and now it's like he goes somewhere where he shouldn't, you know, why does he do that? You know, I guess I've always tend, I always tend to think of it as angels in the book of Revelation very often have, I don't want to say divine qualities, but they also, they often look like God. Um, You think of like the angel who is, you know, clothed with the sun, for example, you know, the imitating what Jesus is doing. Um, the messengers of God will sometimes look like God. And I I just think that maybe John got a little bit confused here. And I don't think that that's wrong to say because we get a point which is made from it. So John records his mistake here because the point being that, you know, Mm -hmm. I am, you shouldn't do this, worship God for the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy, right? This is what, the, the point is so he he records what he did, maybe in a, as a mistake, as a way of making a further point about, you know, the, the whole point of, of this prophecy in general,
0: because he's yeah. going to do
1: it again later in the book of Revelation. Yeah, yeah it
0: happens at the very end. Um, but it, but all of even that is strange to me because you have the saints are shouting, praise the Lord, worship God, you know, give him the glory. And they do it twice. And then you hear the voice from the throne. And then again, let us rejoice and give glory to God. And then John's like, but I'm going to bow down to this angel. Um, so that's that's just, I'm just trying to give you my logic for why would I see this as yeah. not flat out idolatry, but just that sense of honoring. And then this there is this theme in the book of Revelation. You have some progress where the angels, the the 24 elders, the living creatures, they're the ones who are closest to the throne, and they're the ones who are leading the song of praise in those early chapters, chapters four and five. But here in chapter 19, it's the, the martyrs, the saints, the human voices are the ones leading the song of praise. Now, maybe that's not super significant, Um, Because that you're right in verse four, the angels join in. But I think even just that slight altering of the order, you know, that early in the book, the angels lead the worship and the, the, you know, the saints join in. And now as we go through the book of Revelation, we're coming to the end. And that place is, in a sense, flipped. Uh, Or if you use my language that I said earlier, the place of the saints is being lifted up. They're being brought even higher than the angels. And so they now lead the song of praise and the angels join in with us. I think you could see that same theme coming up here. John tries to honor the angel and the angel says, no, no, you must not do that. Just worship the Lord, bow down to him. You don't have to honor us anymore. You're ahead of us.
1: So what you're telling me is, is that you're interpreting Revelation through what might be one of the greatest hymns ever, See the Conqueror mounts in Triumph, you know, man with God with man upon the throne, we by faith behold our own. Is that what you're telling me here? Yeah, I think we like the Ascension. We like Ascension Day hymns. That's all That's good. It, it is good stuff. Well, with that note, we're going to go to our second break. So we'll be right back with more Wordfully Spoken. I'm Zellen Heidi here with David Apple, continuing our discussion of the Book of Revelation. So we've gotten through the rejoicing of heaven and talking about the coming marriage of the Lamb, but now chapter 19 turns towards another image. You you described it as a, a martial image, and what is that image that we see here? Yes, you get finally
0: a description, another vision of Jesus. The last time that we saw Jesus, I suppose there's two instances that might come to mind. In chapter 12, he was the young child who was snatched. The the dragon was waiting to devour, but he was snatched up to heaven. Um, And then in chapter 14, there was this brief mention of the Lamb of God with 144,000 on Mount Zion, Uh, but you didn't have a prolonged description um, the last really prolonged vision of Jesus was way back at the beginning of the book when he appeared to John, and John saw, you know, the eyes burning like fire. So here now in chapter 19, Jesus, uh, in a sense, finally makes his his appearance again. Uh, and you get this great description, a white horse and a rider on the white horse, and you get a long description then of Jesus in his glory coming forward, um, as a conquering, um, warrior on a horse. And is this where we insert a, a Tolkien reference or not? It, it would fit here. Certainly. Um, you know, this is surely one of the Miaras, um, the, one of the original great horses, um, that Shadowfax is just a, you know, a long, a, a long descendant from, Uh, But there's not much attention paid to the horse. It's more to the rider on the horse. Um, So here's the description. I'll just read it for you. The one sitting is called, and there's a lot of attention on his names here. He is called faithful and true. In righteousness, he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire. We've seen that before. On his head are many diadems. Okay, so up till this point, the one wearing the crowns was the dragon, the beast, they had a bunch of crowns, but Jesus has even more, right? He's got a whole bunch of diadems on his head. And he has a name written on him that no one knows except himself. And then in a minute, it's going to say, and everybody knows it. So we, we could talk about that. <laughs> he's clothed in a robe dipped in blood and the name by which he is called only he knows this, but the name by which he's called now, everybody's going to know is the word of God. Okay, so that's the the warrior, but then the scene shifts, okay, he's not alone, so coming with him is a whole army, and the armies of heaven arrayed in this is what I mentioned before fine linen, white and pure, so earlier it was the bride who was clothed in white linen. Now the armies are clothed in this fine, pure white linen. I think we should see this is the it's the same group. the bride is also the the church militant here, they were following him on their own white horses and out of his mouth comes this sharp sword. We've seen this before with which he will strike down the nations and he will rule them with the rod of his mouth. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God, the almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written King of Kings, Lord of Lords.
1: Doesn't that make you want to just get up and shout? I mean it's, it's it's so great it
0: really is but yeah, you you want to get a horse uh, everybody needs to trade their car in for
1: uh for a couple of horses well that might just be good practical advice but yeah but the the image of the white rider here is uh I mean there's there's lots of different pictures that are being put together right so first of all he's called faithful and true and I would argue that he's called that because in other places in the book of Revelation, especially in the beginning, that's how he's referred to, right? The faithful witness and the true, the one who is uh, the kind of the the pattern after which we should follow that sort of thing. So, I mean, that image is, is very clear. And of course, you know, in righteousness, he judges makes war, you know, uh, the, the, the more specific images I think are important. Like I'm looking at verse 12 here where it says his, eyes are like a flame of fire. You know, where did we see that image before David? Well, he, uh, when John saw Jesus
0: in the beginning, his eyes were flames of fire. Now in the, in the book of Daniel, uh, this, when Daniel sees the, the judge, the fire is all around, uh, the ancient of days and the son of man is presented to the ancient of days. But here, Um, That fire that was all around the throne and that went out from the throne of the ancient of days is now in the eyes of, you know, the son of man too. Mm -hmm. So he is, he shares in the the glory of the father, we might say, or um, he is of one substance with the father. So the attributes that are associated with the ancient of days are now also associated into the
1: vision of the son of man. Yeah, I think that's fair. And then, of course, you already mentioned with the diadems, you know the dragon had some, he had a specific number, but the Son of Man has many, you know, without number, sort of yep. a thing, yeah, and a diadem it, this is an important point, I think that we've made before. there's a difference between the crown, which is given to the saints, you know that's like the the victory wreath that's a you know the the sign of a of a overcoming something. Whereas a diadem is a crown, which is the crown of a king. It's the crown of authority. And so for him to have many diadems shows his boundless authority. You know, the, the devil may have great authority. He may even, you know, presume to have you know all authority. But in reality, all authority has been given to, the, to mm-hmm. Christ mm-hmm. in heaven and on earth. He is yeah. the one who is the king, the king of kings and the Lord of lords.
0: Right now. The- yeah, the and the last we had heard of a battle it was back in chapter 16 the the armies were coming from the east, right? And they were they were coming to Armageddon for the the battle of Armageddon. They were coming for a a great fight. And so this this picks up on that. This is the first time we've come back to battle. We had this long series of um you know, the what happens to the the whore of Babylon in the meantime. Uh but that's it, I think it we're supposed to read this as kind of picking up, we're we're hearkening back to chapter sixteen, where the armies, the kings of the earth are coming to make war, and now here comes the heavenly rider going out to meet them, going out to do the battle. And so we expect there to to be a big fight that comes, but but all of these things that we're seeing are sort of cluing us in on the fact that it's not a fair fight, right? It's not like, um, they're, they're on equal footing, the imposter rulers, the, the power of the beast, the power of the dragon is going to be, um, a no challenge for this rider who is faithful and true. He's going to, he's going to wipe them out, right? The, it it's, it's giving away what's going, what's about to take place.
1: Yeah, Absolutely. But I I do want to point out, though, with the name written that no one knows but himself, you said that you think that that refers to the names which are coming, like the Word of God and the Lord of Lords. And I think you can do that. Um, I guess I've always thought of it this way, though, that first of all, he has many names, right? He is called Faithful and True. He's called the Word of God. He's called King of Kings, that sort of thing. He's called Jesus. He's called Christ. You know, Jesus has many names by which we know him. Uh, But the name that that no one else knows, I've always taken to be a sign of that no one can have authority over him. Because in the Bible, frequently, if you know the name of someone or something, that typically means that you have a kind of authority over them. You're able to command them, right? Because God gives names to the stars. He gives names to, you know, the, the things of creation. Mm-hmm. It, it's a sign of authority. And so if he has a name, which no one else knows that just goes to show that no one has authority over him.
0: Yeah. I, I get what you're saying, right? Adam gives names to the beasts as a sign of his, that he's the King. Right. And so now, um, no one is King over Jesus. Nobody gives him a name. Um, and i think that's that's a good point to make but what i what i'm saying is no one gives him the name but he makes the name known right think of his high priestly sure. prayer i have manifested to them your name o father so the making known of the secret name is it part and parcel of the gospel right he he makes known to us god so that we can say we do know his name we call him by name because he's given us He's given that to us, right? It's that grace given um, is received and then the faithful are able to speak and know these secret things or these mysteries. Sure. Sounds good to me. So um, there is a a couple other things that come out here. Uh, Let's talk about what Jesus is wearing. So he has, his robe is covered in blood. And there's some question as to whose blood this is. I don't know if you're familiar with this discussion, Zellwin, or not, um, but the b- the blood that's on his robe could be, there. there's a number of options. It could be his own blood, you know, as a sign of, kind of a sign of his, from his passion. Um, okay. It could be the blood of his enemies, or it could be the blood of the martyrs that is coloring him now. I don't, hmm. I don't know that there's a huge debate about this,
1: about what, what, do you, what's your sense, which whose blood is on his robe? I guess I understand it as the blood of his enemies, that he is the conquering king, that he has gone forth to make war, that he is covered head to toe in the blood of those who opposed him. Um, and so we just see another picture of his power, of his might and his victory in that sense. You know, he has come out of the battle covered in blood. Yeah,
0: let me let me give you the the possibility of the martyr blood here. Okay. The the possibility that it's the blood of the martyrs is that um how how do the martyrs conquer their enemies? They conquer them by what does it say in in chapter 12? They loved not their life even unto death. Okay? So somehow the blood of the martyrs is also the is victorious blood, right so the the beast thinks that he's destroying the martyrs and you can think of the um, what happens you know with the the Roman persecution here the the Romans think that they're showing um, the Christians to be fools, but when they kill the martyrs, what happens? the crowds the crowds are converted by these things, right so the the shedding of blood, the martyrs being willing to give that witness. That not even death, not even death will separate them from the lamb is actually the that is what overcomes the beast, um, the the persecution. So the it could be, and I'm not saying that what you're putting forward there, I think that's kind of my knee-jerk reaction. My initial thought is to say he has conquered his enemies. Um, but it could also be that the blood of the martyrs on the robe of Jesus is a sign of the victory of martyrdom that he goes forward in the power of martyrdom and it's through the power of martyrdom that he's going to face down and conquer um his enemies.
1: Well, I wouldn't deny that Jesus going out to conquer is, you know, a response to the suffering of his people. You know, he is coming to give us victory after all. I don't know. I I see where you're coming from, but I think I'd still want to stick with the uh, the blood of his enemies because I like the image of him being Conan the barbarian so
0: <laughs> well this that gets us into a little bit here um, of the, a difference in how I'm taking it and and I think what you're saying you would say this is last day kind of stuff right that right. the appearance of this is the second coming of Jesus right. and it, again I think I'm trying to read this as the the continuation of um the mission or the maybe the beginning of the the mission now continuation is a better word here the next stage in the the mission of the church okay so i'm not denying that the son will come again in glory on the last day but what i'm what the way that i'm reading chapter 19 here is that this coming of the son of man is the coming of the son uh in the next stage of the mission of the church. So that's where. Why does he have this sword coming out of his mouth? Well, because what he's going to do now is conquer the nations. It's the the beginning of um, the mission going out beyond Jerusalem, and I know it already has. It's not like this is hard and fast. You know, there was no missionary efforts beyond Jerusalem until the year seventy. Saint Paul was already going out, but I think with the fall of Jerusalem, the fall of Babylon. There is an opening up of a a spreading out further of the mission that comes. It goes in in these stages. And so I think you can read chapter 19 here as the son coming to uh, not in his final glory, but coming to advance the mission of the church. And so then what follows here in that reading, what I'm saying is that this is not the last day. Uh, But it's the the mission of the church going out, conquering the nations with the word of his mouth, the word of Jesus now conquers, slays the kings of the earth
1: and brings them into the church. And I, I certainly wouldn't deny that Christ conquering includes his ruling over the nations. I mean, all nations will bow before him, right? All will call him Lord to their everlasting glory or their everlasting shame. I guess I just with the the upcoming battle here in the in the last part of this reading, which hopefully we'll get to. <laughs> um I just I see it as a much more final kind of thing. And that's why I tend to look at it as the last day. But I don't think that they are entirely exclusive of each other. I think you could see, you know, the King of Kings and Lord of Lords being that now, which he certainly is, and we see the him going out and conquering the nations. But I do think that this is a picture of the end, you know, the final victory of Christ.
0: Yeah, we've and we've uh, we've discussed this at length um, in other places, too. So this is not this is not new that, you know, I'm trying to say this happened after the year. 70 you know, for me, when I read Revelation, I'm just always thinking, what does this have to do with the year 70? And uh, <laughs> I think you're saying this has to do with the end. Right. So that just so that our hearers understand that difference there um, that distinction so if if it is in fact what happens after seventy, this is where I think my reading gets a little bit hard to um, to follow, so let me see if I can do it quickly. What comes next then is the angels the angel invites the birds of heaven to come for a supper, so we had earlier you know get ready for the marriage supper of the lamb, and now there's going to be this is this the same supper or is this a different one? What happens is the the rider on the horse goes with his army, the kings of the nations come in, and they have the beast and the false prophet with them. And the beast and the false prophet are thrown into the lake of fire, and the kings of the earth are slaughtered by um there there's not a big description of the battle. You know, it's not a long drawn out battle. It just happens. And it's over almost as soon as it starts, right? So, if this is in fact the final day, that's a description of final judgment, right? All but right. if this if this is the beginning of a, a larger mission of the church, a, a more worldwide mission, you'd have to say, and I would have to say this: this is where it gets a little bit hard to follow, but that the the sword of of Christ. The sword of his mouth slaying the kings of the earth doesn't refer to final judgment, but to the conversion of the nations. They are being, to use the Pentecostal language, they're being slain in the spirit here. They're being converted. And their conversion is their death. Right? It's um they're they're killed and brought to life, whereas the beast is thrown into fire, and the false prophet are they're thrown into fire. They're not converted, but the
1: kings, the nations, are converted here. I see where you're getting at, and I know, and I, I can follow you. I just, I think it's much more natural to take it as judgment, especially because this is a very clear allusion to Ezekiel 39, uh, with the the birds being told to come and feast on the the uh, the bodies of Gog and Magog. Uh, And so I I guess I see it as that judgment and the the, the birds basically coming to dishonor the bodies because the victory is that complete. You know, there are so many bodies left around that there's not even room to bury them, which was a a great disgrace in the ancient world. And so in that sense, we see a complete victory even over all the world, which culminates in the beast and the false prophet being thrown into the lake of fire. That's how I would take it. Yeah,
0: the the challenge to that is that then in chapter twenty, and we'll do this, we'll do millennium posting next time. The, the, this is my um, contention is that if you take it that way, then chapter twenty, you have to essentially hit rewind, and you have right. to go. If, if this is the end, then <laughs> when you hit chapter twenty, you have to say, all right, now we're gonna we're gonna go back in time, and we're gonna we're gonna review all of history all of the the history of the church um, and come to the end again. Whereas if you take what I'm saying um, that the fall of the fall of Babylon is 70 and that coincides also then with the destruction of the beast, not that Rome ends, but that the Roman and Jewish alliance um, comes crumbling down and the church advances then chapter 20, the church advances into the millennium, which is, you know, I'm not trying to be a millennialist here, right? But that the, um, the, the time of the church follows after chapter 19 without having to hit rewind and say, now we're going to view it from another perspective. I'm, I'm trying to see, is there a sequential reading? I think you can see it sequentially. You can see a, a chronological progression
1: here. And I'm not denying that you could do that, or that maybe that would make, you know, a little bit tighter, a tighter connection. Um, I would just point out that it's not unheard of in the scriptures to jump around chronologically. So, fair enough. well, <laughs> next time,
0: next time we'll get into the millennium. And I know that that's what everybody uh, wants to wants to talk about anyways. So we'll we'll have some fun with millennium posting next time. Yeah, nobody,
1: nobody wants to read chapter 19. Let's get to chapter 20. So. Sounds good. <laughs> all right, is there anything else you want to close with David? No, I think we I think we've covered it. Just
0: the um the mission of the church here, I think is central to the book of Revelation. We've said this many times, right? What's the what's kind of the overarching theme of Revelation that Jesus wins, right? And it's this eschatology of of hope um or a victory that's presented. I think in all the discussion here, the the difference we both are saying that we win and Jesus wins. Um, But what I'm, what I'm interested in is seeing how the church already now uh, begins to participate in that victory without, you know, I'm, I'm not trying to uh, deny the final coming or the, the final advent, but I'm trying to say already now we, we participate in that and I
1: find that that's part of the encouragement of the Book of Revelation. Well said. This has been a word fitly spoken. If you like what you heard, check us out: wordfitlyspoken.org, facebook.com/wordfitly, or Twitter at wordfitly. I'm Zoe and Heidi here with David Apple. God love you and God bless.
0: He has raised our human nature on the clouds to God's right hand. There we sit in heavenly places, there with him in glory stand. Jesus reigns, adored by angels. Man with God is on the throne. By our mighty Lord's ascension, we by faith behold our own.